Thank you, Art. It's getting harder and harder to follow the announcements. <laughs> you know, few things shock me in life as I get older. Fewer and fewer things. I'm, I'm not as easily startled as I read the newspaper and other such things. We kind of see society circling the drain, and so maybe I'm jaded, maybe I'm just hardened, who knows. But fewer and fewer things shock me as I get older. However, we were going out to dinner after church one Sunday, and we go to our normal stop at Baker's. And they have a security camera there at Baker's. And as I'm approaching the counter, there's a television here with the camera behind you. And as I'm approaching the camera, I see... (laughs) I got to tell you, that was pretty startling. It's like, whoa, when did that happen? <laughs> oh. I, I knew, because when it rains, you can start feeling the raindrops. <laughs> they sort of tap on your skull at the balder you get. But I had no idea how bad it had gotten. It was a wake-up moment. One other thing that has startled me recently was a survey that I read. How many of you like surveys? I love surveys. I don't know how accurate they are, but but I think this one was probably fairly accurate. See what you think. It's on how people use their time. How people use their time. This is believers that we're talking about in this survey, and it says that believers sleep an average of seven to 8.6 hours per night. Says that believers work 9.1 hours a day on average. Believers exercise one hour per day. I didn't fall into that category. (laughs) Believers watch TV four hours a day on average, 28 hours a week. You do the math on that, that is four hours a day for 65 years. That is nine years of your life that you are watching the tube. Prayer for the average Christian, and this is the part that shocked me, three to four minutes a day, usually at meals, 15 to 30 minutes per week, per week. That's startling. That's shocking. Why so little? I had to ask myself, why so little? Why do people pray so little? And I think my answers are this. Because of unbelief? I think because of unbelief. Because they don't think it works. They don't see the results of it sometimes. As the survey would indicate, they're overly distracted. Facebook usage is up 400% in the last year. Because of impatience and waiting for answers. So why don't 
believers pray? Because they don't understand prayer. They don't understand what the purpose of it is or how it interacts with God's will for their life. It's the believer's biggest blind spot, beloved. And so for the last two weeks, we have been focusing on God's providential dealing with humanity, how God's will intersects with our will and how the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man work together in cooperation somehow. Last week in particular, we saw that man makes his plans, yet the Lord governs those plans. He stands behind every one of them, and we do what God's sovereign will is. And this week, in keeping with the theme of providence, we're going to look at the book of Ruth, and we're going to see three ways that we must learn to pray so that we will rest in God's providence. As believers, this theme of resting in the providence of God. How exactly do our prayers interact and with and cooperate with a sovereign, holy God? If this looks familiar on your handout, by the way, it's because I've hijacked it from our core values. And I took artistic liberty in that because I helped construct those. So I'm allowed to do that, aren't I, Dave? Core value number three. Core value number three. The first way we must learn to pray is powerfully. Powerfully. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're not there already, turn to Ruth chapter four. And we're going to see two examples of what I mean in praying powerfully. This is, again, page 280 in your pew Bibles, if you're not there already. Actually, I'm going to have you back up a couple of pages and go to Ruth chapter 1 for this first example. And what I want to show you is Ruth's prayer here. What we're talking about here is powerful prayer that begins with the determination of the individual. That is our core value. We believe in powerful prayer that begins with the determination of the individual. And we see lots of individual prayers in the book of Ruth. But let me just say this on the front side. Faithful individuals pray powerfully because they pray faithfully. Faithful individuals pray powerfully because they pray faithfully. What do I mean by that? Well, look at Ruth's prayer. Ruth's prayer was powerful because she was willing to die to see it come to fruition. Look at verses 1, 16 to 17 here. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death departs you and me. That's a powerful prayer. That is a powerful prayer because she was willing to see it, see herself die in order for that prayer to come to fruition. The important thing to understand here is this is, a, this is Ruth's conversion prayer in chapter 1. This is a conversion prayer. She's binding herself not only to the God of Israel, but to Naomi as well. She's binding herself in a lifelong commitment and refusing to sway unless anything but death parts them. 
So serious was her commitment that she was willing to die for it. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot I could say about this, but I'm going to confine my thoughts to just a few areas. And that is, let's face it, we live in a time of easy believism. We live in a time of cheap grace. People feel some sort of emotional quiver when they hear the Word of God. Perhaps it strikes a chord in them. They don't like the consequences of their sin and the lifestyle they find themselves in. So they pray some sort of sinner's prayer, some formulated prayer, yet they remain as lost as the day is long. And why is that? Why is that? Because they've not really repented of their sin. They've simply mouthed the cold some cold words, and yet not really had a heart change. But such is not the case with Ruth. But the church in America is full of tares. The church in America is full of tares. A truly repentant prayer is a powerful prayer because it changes us. It fundamentally changes us because our heart has changed, because God has changed it, And the prayer of our heart would be that God would continue to change us. That's where the power is in the prayer. It's it's life-changing. If your commitment to the words is not sincere when you pray that sinner's prayer, whatever prayer you prayed to God, if the words were not sincere, then why bother? Why bother? God knows you're a fake. I've been thinking a lot about this because Ruth's commitment was, I'm willing to lay it all on the line and I'm willing to follow you back to your people. I'm giving up my gods, my people, my culture. I'm giving up everything. And I'm going back to Israel with you. Your God will be my God and I will die before I change anything. And I was thinking about what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? The cost of discipleship. Jesus said, if any one of you wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's the same idea. Have you ever thought about that expression? What does it mean? What does it mean to take up your cross? What does that mean? Does it it mean a willingness to die for the sake of the gospel? I think that's what most believers think it means, but that's not what it means. Let me illuminate you this morning. The cross was designed to demonstrate that in the end, a rebel had submitted to the rulership of Rome. It was a public demonstration that their last public act would be to carry a cross through the streets and be subjected to Rome's governing over them. Their last act in life would be an act of submission. That was the point of the cross. So to take up your cross was a figure of speech that everybody in the first century would have understood. And what it meant was they were to display submission publicly to the authority against which they had previously rebelled. They were taking up their cross and they were submitting to the government against which they had previously rebelled. In the same way, Christ said, deny yourself. So what did he mean? Well, he meant cease rebelling against the king and his rule. Stop rebelling. Cease being hostile to God. Stop being disobedient to God. And as one author put it, he said, to take up your cross means to submit actively to the king and his reign, 
to obey God and to do his will. That's what it means to take up your cross. To submit, to submit to the authority you once rebelled against. And we've been talking about providence and God's sovereign rule for the last three weeks. And what we're talking about is you're not in control. You're not in control. God's in control. And what you need to do is to submit to God's sovereign rule. He is Lord. You are a subject. You submit. God doesn't submit. Spurgeon said it this way. I have now concentrated all my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly to him. All of your prayer life can be funneled down into one, and that is you would die and submit to God's rule. So the first example, a powerful prayer, is one that subjects your will to God's. And let me just say this, in a culture that admires rebellion, this is a hard call. This is a hard call that admires rebellion and promotes individualism and, and being a, a standout in the crowd. This is a hard call. But what we're talking about here is your submission to an all-powerful ruler. You are a, now a subject of the kingdom. You are to die. Christ is to live. It's a hard call. That's what makes a powerful prayer, though. That God would so change your heart that you would want to please Him and serve Him with everything you have. The second example is Boaz's prayers. Pages 279 and 80. Boaz's prayer was powerful because he was willing to be the answer to his own prayer. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 2.12. He says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Just pop over to Chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. He wakes up in the middle of the night and says, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you ask, for all my people in this city know that you are a woman of excellence. Look at this phrase back over in 2.12. You see the word wings? And you see in verse 9 of chapter 3, the word covering. It's the same word in the Hebrew. He's praying over in one chapter that, that God would, in essence, cover her and protect her in his care. That was his prayer, and God answered that prayer by having him be the one who would provide the covering and protection. So powerful prayer means a willingness on our part to be the answer to the prayer. I think Boaz understood when she came and submitted herself to him and asked him to cover her, she understood exactly what she was doing. She was asking for him to be the one to protect her. In one place it's, 
It's God who's going to do it. In another place, it's the man who did it as the instrument of God's covering. Let me just say, we need to, we need to be willing to be the means for the answer. For prayer to be powerful, we need to be willing to be the means that God uses to answer the prayer. I'll give you a for instance. We pray for the salvation of people all the time, don't we? We, we desire and we long for family members to be saved. A powerful prayer would be, Lord, if you would, if you would use me in that process somehow, some way, let me speak when given the opportunity. Give me opportunity to speak. Lord, save this person and use me somehow to do it. Right? Don't make the mistake, by the way, of thinking that someone is going to come to faith by observing your godly lifestyle. Most of us in this room do not live such a godly lifestyle that people would be drawn to the Savior by just watching us. Maybe you're asking God to bless somebody. Maybe you're asking God to intercede in their life. Maybe you're the means of that blessing. Maybe you're the means of God working in that person's life. Powerful prayer is powerful because it's offered by individuals who are faithful in their commitment to the Lord. A willingness to be used of God and be even the answer to your own prayers. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz were people of faith. And so we can see that they prayed powerfully because they prayed faithfully. The second way we need to learn to pray is purposefully. Look at chapter 4, if you will, verses 11 to 13, page 281 in your pew Bible there. Prayer should ignite our love for one another and for God's kingdom work. In other words, it should be bigger than ourselves. Bigger than ourselves. It should be for the blessing of others and for the advancement of God's plan. Chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. And here's the prayer. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built, built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Keep reading verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. These prayers are offered up here on behalf of Ruth in verse 11. You see that? Ruth in verse 11 and Boaz in verse 12. So the people and the elders in particular are praying for blessings upon Ruth and Boaz. They pray not only that they would have an offspring, but that, in fact, they would have a male offspring. It was purposeful. And not only that, but that God would bless them with power and wealth. Wealth and fame, if you will. And they use 
the Word of God to inform their prayers. They pull these two stories out of the Old Testament that everybody would have been familiar with, right? The book of Genesis provides the backdrop for these prayers. For Ruth, they're basically asking that she would have children as Jacob's wives had children. You remember that story? Jacob and, and Rachel and Leah. And it was through those unions that the 12 tribes of Israel came. Very famous story. So they're asking that Ruth would be fertile. That she would have lots of kids. For Boaz, the people and the elders pray that this, as we said, this is a leveritic marriage and that this leveritic marriage would result in a male heir as did the first such marriage of this kind in the Old Testament in Genesis 38. This situation with Judah and Tamar was the first instance of a Leveritic marriage in the Old Testament. So they're praying informed by the Scriptures. It wasn't just for a male heir. It was also beyond that for power and fame, for God's plan to unfold in their lives. And the interesting thing about this prayer is verse 13. The Lord answered it immediately. He enabled Ruth not only to conceive. Don't miss the statement of sovereignty there. The Lord opens the womb and he closes it. He allowed Ruth to conceive. And not only that, he also assigned the gender of the child. He gave birth to a son. By the hand of the Lord. By the hand of the Lord. The Lord's hand moved. And everybody saw it. So the prayers were a means of God's providence. They, they moved it along like, like nerves innervating muscle fibers. This is how they interact together. We pray, and it somehow interacts with God's sovereign plan. I don't know how. Nobody knows how. It just does. But they prayed, and God answered the prayer very specifically. As I thought about this, I thought, you know, one of the reasons I think we struggle with our prayer life is because we don't really pray beyond our immediate needs. I think we tend to have our prayer very focused on just our bubble, if you will, our little bubble of life. And we don't really see beyond what God is doing, the, the big picture of what God is doing in history, not only in just saving us, but, but glorifying himself and his name in the kingdom. Our, our prayers are very small. They're very little. They're very focused on our little bubble, our immediate surroundings. There's no real power in that. It's just asking God as some sort of cosmic messenger to give us what we want. Our will needs to be drawn to His will and what God is doing in the world. The more we pray, our purposes should align with His purposes. That's the point. Look at Colossians chapter 2, if you will. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1180. Colossians, I'm sorry, chapter 4, correction. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. The Apostle Paul here says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open us will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison. 
You want to pray for something powerful, pray for doors for the gospel to be open. Pray that we would somehow, through Summit Bible Church, make an entrance into the San Bernardino community. That Fontana would be ours for Christ. That Upland would be ours for Christ. Pray for open doors for the gospel. Pray thanking God for all that He's done. Pray for opportunities to speak for Christ. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. This is interesting. Look at page 1209 in your pew Bible there. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Why were there quarrels in the early church? Why were there problems going on there? Verse 3. Just drop down to verse 3. James says, well, back up to verse 2, sorry. End statement. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that, purpose statement, you may spend it on your pleasures. What are we praying for? What is the focus of our prayer life? Is it for us? Is it for our little world? Or is it for all that God is doing in the world and beyond? We should pray purposefully. We should pray with the right motives. And we need to understand this very important truth that the purpose of our prayers should align with God's purpose in saving us. Stop and think about that for just a moment. The, the purpose of our prayers should align with God's purposes in saving us. Why did He save you? Speak to me. Why did God save you? To be a witness. To be a witness of His grace. Your purposes for prayer should align with God's purposes. We need to learn to pray powerfully, purposefully, and lastly, and we'll spend more time on this, the third way we must learn to pray is passionately. Passionately. Look back at the book of Ruth, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15 here. Passionate prayer demonstrates a need for God's power and a dependence upon His provision. We need to learn dependence. We need to learn to be dependent upon God and all that He is doing. Verses 14 to 15, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. May His name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. And your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. We need to learn dependence on God. The people here, the women, pray on behalf of Naomi now. You see that in verse 14? Remember how this story began. It was Naomi who lost her husband, right? It was Naomi who lost her two sons. It is Naomi who was stuck with a Moabite daughter-in-law and nothing else. And she's the one who went back to Israel. And this story now, in the end, is God blessing this woman, Naomi. And he's blessing her through the prayers of his people for her. You see this? 
Look at verse 14. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you, Naomi, without a redeemer. It wasn't that Ruth got redeemed. It was that Naomi got redeemed. And the redeemer is not God. This is the interesting thing. Look at the text. May his name become famous in Israel. It's not God's name. It's not capitalized. The verb relates back to Obed. May God give you a son. This child is going to redeem you back into Israel. And may he, in verse 15, may Obed also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. God uses means. God uses means. And he's going to use this little child, this little baby, to redeem a woman who is as good as dead. You look at chapter 1, she's a dead woman. You look at chapter 4, she's restored to life. Amazing. Providentially, God is using Ruth and Boaz and the circumstances of all of their lives combined to redeem this woman, Naomi. They also praise God for Ruth. Verse 15, you see that? The women say, she's better to you than seven sons. Seven sons, the number of perfection in Hebrew. It would have been perfect to have seven sons. They could have cared for you in your old age. But as it is, you're left with one daughter-in-law, and she's better to you than what we could possibly think of as being perfect. In God's providence... We would think, statistically speaking, it would be better to have seven sons. But in the providence of God, one Moabite daughter-in-law did much more than seven sons could ever do for her. Fantastic. If you look back at the text with me, apparently Boaz did not have a son already. So, in verse 10, He says, moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. That would be Elimelech. So that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace, you are witnesses today. Back up to verse 9. All that Elimelech had, he's getting, as well as all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. It's very interesting. In conceiving a son by the widow of Malone, providentially the inheritance of Malone and Kilion and Elimelech, they all go to Obed. Everything. Jackpot. He gets it all. So it's, it's not only in the union of these two and the birth of a firstborn son, it's that Boaz didn't already have a son by God's predetermined plan. Boaz didn't already have a son. So the firstborn male heir gets everything of all three men. Fantastic. Blessing beyond belief. And it was beyond simply prayer for an individual in its scope. It, it redeemed the entire family of Elimelech. And ultimately, as we see, It was for the benefit of God's kingdom in that through this union would come the birth of King David. Generations to come. He would be more famous than the 12 tribes of Israel. And beyond that, the greater son of David, 
the Messiah would come from this line who would be even greater than David and even greater than all the 12 sons of Israel. God's providential hand was at work here moving in the lives of His people. It's amazing. The word providence means to see beforehand literally. It's where the word provide comes for as, as well. It's two words put together, pro meaning beforehand, and videre, which means to, to see. So it means to see beforehand. What do we know to be an attribute of God? His omniscience, His foreknowledge. God sees beforehand. And not only does He see beforehand, but He knows what our needs are, and so He provides them for us. He gives them to us before we even ask. God does this not for us, but for His own glory and for our good. As I said, prayer is the nerves, if you will. Think of a nervous system. It's the nerves that, that send electricity to the muscles. The muscles contract, and that's what causes movement. Right? God is sovereign. His plan is sovereign. But our prayers are the nerves that innervate the muscle fibers. One writer said it this way, if most of our prayers are really a reflection of our concepts of the glory and power of God, our theology is in serious need of overhaul. Let me say that again. If most of our prayers are really a reflection of our concepts of the glory and power of God, our theology is in serious need of overhaul. Do we really believe God can provide us with what we're praying for? Do we really believe in an all-powerful, all-sovereign God? Do we really believe that His plans are eternal in nature and that everything that comes to pass, God's sovereign hand has orchestrated just according to plan? There is nothing that deviates from that plan. Do we believe that? question that's probably rolling around in your mind is this well if god is all powerful and all sovereign then why should i pray what effect does it have on god isn't that what most of you are probably thinking why pray if god is sovereign doesn't change his plans well the point of prayer is that we're dependent on him he's not dependent on us we pray to change us. Former pastor said, it's like those little tugboats in the harbor. You know, you see them pulling the big ships in or trying to guide them. It would be kind of the same as a, a little tugboat trying to pull a big ship rather than pushing against the sovereign God. You see what I'm saying? Our prayers don't really change God. God doesn't change. But they do somehow interact to change us and conform us to God's sovereign plan. We're dependent on Him, but one of the means that He uses that He's ordained to provide for us is that of prayer. God wants us to acknowledge our need for His provision by praying. So we should pray passionately. We should pray passionately, not for ourselves, but for God's sovereign will to be done. 
not only for his kingdom, but even in our lives. Pray that God's glory would be manifest in our lives. And believing, beloved, as you pray, that the sovereign God of the universe is the only one who has any ability whatsoever to bring it to pass. That is the, that is the important component here. You know, pagans pray to idols. But are the idols able to do anything? They're powerless. They're deaf. They're dumb. They're mute. They're powerless to do anything. God says, I know the end from the beginning. I'm eternal. I'm all-powerful. I'm sovereign. I'm omniscient. I am the one that can bring it to pass. If you're going to pray to anybody, pray to God. By the way, I think one thing that may help you, just this tip, one thing that may help you in your prayer life is to keep a journal. And why do I say that? Well, because we have short memories. We have very short memories as believers. We pray and we pray and we ask for something and God may be answering it and we don't have any way to even remember or reconcile it in our own mind. We don't know if it's being answered. We, unless we see it in a big visible way like, oh! You know what I'm saying? Like a cloud in a vision. We don't really know. And so... We need to be consistently faithful in prayer, keeping a journal and going back to that journal and seeing how God has answered prayer time and again. You know, we have been praying for years around here that God would enable us to plant a church. God answered that prayer. Did we thank Him for it? Did we acknowledge His hand at work in that? Yeah, it's human means. Yeah, we had some part in and discipling the man we're sending, and discipling the team, and and yeah, we worked the phone banks, and yeah, we gave to it. But it was all of God. It was all of God. That was answered prayer. Did we acknowledge that? Did we praise Him for it? Did we thank Him for His kingdom work coming to pass? This idea of sovereignty is, is a hard one for people in understanding how your prayers interact with God's sovereign will. I confess, it's hard for me to get my arms around. I just know that God says, do it. How many of you can have relationships with your wives, men, without ever speaking to her? Let me ask that another way. How many of you men have relationships with your wives without ever speaking to her? doesn't work very well, does it? What about you wives? Do you think you can relate to your husbands without ever speaking to them? So how can you walk closely with God? How can you know His will? How can your will be conformed to His will if you never pray? As it's been said in the past, the Prayer is the speaking part of our relationship to God. John MacArthur has some insight into this. I'm going to read this for you. It's a longer quote, but I think it's helpful. So hang in there with me. He says, It grieves me that so many believers view the doctrine of God's sovereignty as a deterrent to a healthy, 
vibrant prayer life. That kind of thinking demonstrates an inadequate, incomplete, and unacceptable understanding both of God's sovereignty and of prayer. In truth, we pray because God is sovereign. He alone has power over all human events. In praying, we don't run from His sovereignty, we run to it. It's absolutely true that God is sovereign over every detail of our lives. Job acknowledged that even, that even the number of every person's days is determined. Life and death are in His hands, James 4.15. Yet we eat and breathe and sleep and take measures to avoid any kind of calamity that might end our lives prematurely. Why? Well, that's the very same question as why pray if God is sovereign? And here's the answer to why we need to breathe and why we need to pray. God ordains the means as well as the end. And our prayers are one of the important means by which he accomplishes his will and glorifies himself in the process. So why do you breathe? If you believe in a sovereign God, why do you breathe? Because it's a means that God uses to keep you alive. Why do you pray? Because it's the means that God uses to bring about His perfect will. You are the answer. I think that's a right perspective of prayer and sovereignty and how the two work together. Look at our core values sometime. There's a lot of thought put into those. We need to learn to pray powerfully. We need to learn to pray purposefully. We need to learn to pray passionately. Why? So that this church might be one of the means that God uses to bring about His will and glorify Himself in the process. In these last three weeks, we have seen time and again the invisible hand of God behind everything. It's behind our pain and our suffering. It's behind our plans and it's behind our prayers. And this is all really a matter of worship. Just so you know, understanding God and His providence is really a matter of rightly worshiping God for who He is. Thinking rightly about God's providence is worship. It's worship in that it's acknowledging Him for who He is and for all that He has accomplished and all that He will accomplish. And we've talked over the last three weeks about DUDS. I told you Pastor David came up with this acronym. It's a deficient understanding of divine sovereignty. DUDS. And what it is, really, is a faulty worship system at its core. It's a faulty worship system. It's what lies at the root of anxiety, depression, outbursts of anger. If you want to get right in those areas, then you need to worship God correctly for who He is. Correct worship in the form of Embracing God's sovereignty and providence is the solution. 
It's the key that unlocks all the doors. It is the grand master. It is the universal key. It opens every door. If you can embrace the sovereignty of God, you will understand why you lose it when things don't go your way. Or why you spiral into a depression because you're not getting your way. If you subject your will to God's, you will understand why you're responding that way. God is sovereign. We are His subjects. He is the one with all the control. We need to align with Him, not Him with us. That's the power in prayer. Alastair Begg, a popular radio preacher, said it this way, When we worship God for the praiseworthy, powerful, providential God that He is, it changes our perspective. I like that. It's easy to remember. It's a lot of P's, but you should write it down. When we worship God for the praiseworthy, powerful, providential God that He is, it changes our perspective. And I would only add one thing to that. It should result in a change of practice as well. If you are still in circles, going nowhere in your Christianity, and you can't understand why you're not growing in the Lord, and you're still struggling with this and still struggling with that, I would submit to you this morning, you haven't really embraced this concept. You have not embraced the sovereign rule of Christ. God is sovereign. We are His subjects. If you're still having issues, maybe you don't understand this concept. You haven't repented. And you have not embraced the sovereignty of God. If you would like to, you may speak to me after the service. I'll be available at the back door. But let's pray that God would give us a bigger view of Himself and a smaller view of ourselves. Let's pray. Our Father, we continue to pray that You would cause us to understand You more through Your Word. Father, that we would come to grips with Your providential ruling of Your creation that we would understand how we fit into it all, that we would understand that we are but creatures and You are the Creator, that we are but subjects and You are a sovereign ruler. Father, please give us a right perspective this morning as we think on these things, as we come to grips with Your providential rule in our lives, as we come to grips with Your sovereignty and orchestrating all events for our good and for Your glory. Father, give us a bigger picture of Yourself and cause us, our Father, to yield our will to Yours. Father, may Your Spirit grant that we would mortify the flesh and that we would walk in subjection to Your will. Not for our sake, O Lord, but that Your purposes through us might be fulfilled. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.